This is Writer Types, the podcast all about crime and mystery fiction. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon. And Steve, we have another overstuffed episode. Why don't you tell the folks who's on the program? That is right, Eric. Today, bestseller Gillian Flynn gives us a little feedback when we claim that Writer Types is the best book podcast out there. Absolutely not. I completely disagree. And author Michael Cardos confesses to some past crimes in his youth. In addition to being a huge Billy Joel fan, I was really into magic. And we invite author John Shepard to join us in person at the Writer Type Studio. I would rather be shot with a 357 Magnum. <laughs> All that, plus we get a report from the LA Times Festival of Books and a trio of short story publishers tell us what makes a great story. And later on in the episode, we will announce the winner of our Tugboat Thriller contest. So stay tuned for that. But first, Steve, you read any good books lately? Well, Eric, you know that uh, Afterlife by Marcus Seiki was one of my favorite books of 2017. Oh, yeah. Well, as a reader, I love going back and finding older books by the authors I like. So I picked up Seiki's Brilliance, which is the first in a trilogy. Uh, it's a thriller, but there's plenty of sci-fi elements and social commentary, which is a lot of what I liked about Afterlife. So it's right up my alley. And I also read Laura Lippmann's Sunburn, which was the perfect book to read on a couple of long international flights and several train rides. What have you been reading? Well, you know, I also read Laura Lippmann's Sunburn and really loved it. It was exactly the noir th book that I needed to read at that moment. Uh, and I have also been reading uh, an old noir from the 50s called Fool's Gold by Dolores Hitchens. And this is collected in the Women Crime Writers collection from American Library that was edited and compiled by Sarah Weinman. And Fool's Gold is way more hard-boiled than I expected. It's got great plotting and a real gem of a find. I love digging back into those old noir and, and mystery books from the 40s and 50s. And this has definitely uh, jumped way into my top 10, I think. So I think everyone should uh, check that one out. Fool's Gold by Dolores Hitchens. Highly recommended. Definitely like going back to the source for you, huh? Oh, yeah. I love that. I love, I love finding a hidden gem in there. Well, speaking of hidden gems, our first guest probably needs no introduction. Gillian Flynn is the massive best-selling author of Gone Girl, Dark Places, and Sharp Objects. Well, you know, Steve, if you ever actually do meet her, you will need an introduction because I interviewed Gillian alone when I was recently in Chicago for the second annual Murder and Mayhem convention. And I'm really sorry you had to sit this one out because she was charming and funny. And of course, she you know, kept asking me, where's the funny, handsome guy? I'd ask the same thing, Eric, if I were her. <laughs> <laughs> Gillian Flint, thank you for joining us on Writer Types. Uh, my first question to you, how many times a day do people call you Jillian? <laughs> I always tell my parents they owe me probably about a year and a half of my life back. Just <laughs> just going like, actually, it's Gillian. Actually, it's Gillian. And even like when I had my first book come out, I was like, yeah, I made it. And then we listened to the audiobook, and I was like, Sharp Objects by Gillian Flynn. Oh, no. I was like, no. So, yes, a, a lot, a lot. I, it's, it's apparently, uh, my parents actually got the name from a movie with um, Kim Novak and Jimmy Stewart called Bell, Book, and Candle, and she is a witch named Gillian. <laughs> and uh <-huh>. they, they, <laughs> they heard the name, so I am named after a witch. <laughs> wow. Which is appropriate, probably. <laughs> uh, so you have, you've conquered the novel world and, and, and then film. Now you're headed to HBO to translate your novel, Sharp Objects, into a series. What was it about that story that lent itself more to an extended telling over multiple episodes? You know, I was really... So Sharp Objects, I've always felt as a character study that's hidden inside of a mystery. You know, to me, the mystery is almost, you know, who is Camille as much as who killed these children in, in Wind Gap. Um, it's... it's a very complicated story and I was afraid it's probably the most gothic of my novels I was afraid that pushing it down to two hours and we have we had tried there had been attempts to make it as a movie before and and I was afraid that 
doing it that way might turn it more into a horror movie than mm. a character study. Yeah. And so being able to ha- give it that room it really needed was a really wonderful thing. So it's eight episodes on HBO, um, and it'll be uh, on the summer. And is that something you're thinking can have an extended life beyond this, or it's eight episodes and done? It's just that what was in the novel, and that's it. We don't know, to tell you the truth. Or we, we're open to more. I think there's more to be said about these women. Um, there, it's kind of largely a story about generational violence among women. Yeah. I've always been interested in that. I feel like there's so many stories about where does violence among men come from, where you know it often comes from. You know, you look at. Uh, a man coming back into town and dealing with his dad and that sort of story. And this is about Camille, her mom and Camille and her much younger half sister. And these are three women and how they deal with their aggression and violence in different ways. And and how that looks generationally from a woman who grew up in the fifties to a woman who's, you know, my age, Gen X to a girl who's, you know, very much of, of this age, a teenager of this age. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of, of story to be told. Now, you were recently featured uh, in an article where you said that you embrace your dark side. Is that something, do you only do that on the page? Like, do you, does your family ever get to see your dark side? <laughs> You know, I, I, I try to leave it on the page. Uh, I actually have a little plaque on my desk that says, leave the crazy downstairs. Oh, that's smart. <laughs> so, so I kind of go downstairs. I go down to my little writing room, and that's the kind of nine-to-five thing. I exercise my demons. I let them out and <laughs> r- roam, bounce around the room for a little bit, and I try to leave them downstairs and then go be a normal human being for a while. It works It works sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they, they follow me back up, but... But is, is your family, are they surprised by the dark things you write about? Or are they sort of like, no, that makes sense? They're, yeah, they get it. They <laughs> get it. I've got a dark, I have a dark sense of humor, so they, you know, they, they know what they're dealing with most of the time. <laughs> now, in, in that same interview uh, that I read, you showed yourself quite adept in the art of profanity. Uh, is that also something that comes out a lot at all? Yeah, I'm working on it. I am working on it, but especially now that I have kids. But I, I do love a good curse word. I do. I can't. I'm like I curse like a sailor. I'm trying. I'm trying so hard right now not to. Um, but oh, fine. good. All right. Excellent. <laughs> fuck. 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 There you go. <laughs> do you ever uh, foresee a day where you write a book with a title longer than two words? Uh, yes, you know, that actually, that's my aspiration, but that's my only hope for my next book is that it's not that it'd be good or that it'd be, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing about the actual next book that I'm hoping for, except that it will have uh, only maybe one word title oh, or oh, three you're, words. You're going to go down. I, mean, I might go down. I'm uh, you know, just oh, okay. exp- it's a very experimental book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, I remember uh, when you used to write for Entertainment Weekly and, mm. and you did criticism. Uh, does that make you uh, a little more empathetic when someone has to then review one of your novels or a film adaptation? As long as it's good. If it's a good <laughs> review, I'm so empathetic. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this guy gets me. This this woman, like, totally understands me. Now, no, you know, I understand where it comes from. You know, I understand. I, you know, and very often I'll read a review and I'll be like, well, yeah, good on you. Good point. You know, every once in a while, you know, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, sometimes I read re- reviews and I'm just like, absolutely not. I completely disagree. Every once in a while, but most of the time, I'm, I sort of, I try to say like, oh, yeah, they just didn't like the book. And that is their, you know, if they make a good argument, yeah. I, I don't have a problem with it. If they, if they make a silly argument, then I have a problem with it. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, I want to talk about book signing. Would, would you mind if, while we talk about that, I have you sign some of my books? Is that okay? You could ask me to multitask. I That's going to, good Lord. I'm going <laughs> to try. Go, I'm going to go get I them will right try. Now. I'm going to curse while I do it, though. All right. So as you uh, sign copies of uh, my books there. Uh, God damn, this is hard. <laughs> do you uh, have set things that you like to write in people's books? Are you, are you, are you over that? Like, I, I didn't even prompt you, but you're, you're going ahead and doing more than just a signature here. No, I always do more. I just try to, I try to give a little extra here. But is that something you have to, you have to think about? Do you have a, a stock a list of things that you can just pull from? Every once in a while, I, um, I had a, <laughs> a really bad one when I first started, <laughs> Gone Girl. That I would, 
I don't know why it was so horrible. I would write, get gone. And under like gone, it was like so, it was the worst thing. It was like, just came in. And I, so like, I'm so sorry for the first thousand people that I did that my early book signings to. I apologize for anyone who has get gone written in their book because that was so lame. So those are collector's items now. So really, you, you stopped so, that right away. Yeah, like what was, what was that all about? I, was, I deeply regret those. Was it, um, please tell me, it was get, get gone, get, exclamation point. It was, yeah, it was gone. I was like, what the hell? Um, yeah, so I stopped doing that. Every once in a while, yeah, every once in a while I'll get, um, I'll try to do something, but sometimes I just do a signature if I'm feeling uninspired. Well, then, so that sort of feeds right into my other question is, uh, what's your worst or most embarrassing signing story? I mean, I, I think you just had it. I was writing, like, some of those, I, uh, just those moments. And, you know, but, I, I mean, most of the time I really like signing. I like, I like, I mean, I would say any writer who doesn't want to go out and sign books or, you know, moans about that is an asshole. You know, like, that's what every writer dreams of doing. So oh, yeah. if you find that to be an onerous task, you should stop writing. That's, I, know, I don't get it because you spend so much time by yourself, and it's fun to go out and meet people and talk yeah, exactly. to people. and. I like to I like to hear what people think about the books, even and even when people wait in line twenty minutes for Gone Girl and come up and you know slam the book down and say I hated the ending, which I have a <laughs> lot of people do. A lot of people hate the ending and will happily tell me about it. Like they made me read this in book club and I hated it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'll be like, you know, I'm just like, okay, well, well you know, what did you, how did you want it to end? With Gone Girl, and um, you know, what did you want to happen? It's usually some version of I wanted justice. I, I yeah. wanted justice, and I was like, well, you know, well, what about this book possibly led you to believe that there's <laughs> going to be justice? <laughs> there's no, there's no justice to be had in this book, but um, but pe- a lot of people believe that there's going to be a happy ending. And, you know, they they either want a happy ending or believe a happy ending or or want a nice tight bow on the end. And I get that. Um, I just didn't feel like that story was going to have it. I even discussed it with my publisher, and they were really cool about it. They were sort of like, you understand, though, that a lot of people aren't going to like this ending. And I said, I, yeah, I do. I know some people are going to slam. I didn't know people, actually, I didn't know some people are going to slam their book down at me and scream, I hated your book. But <laughs> but everybody dreams of that, too. That's true. <laughs> well, I like the ending. Oh, thanks. The beginning, not so much, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was a blur. I'm beginning in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Eric, not to be outdone by your solo interview with Gillian Flynn, I went to the LA Times Festival of Books Without You, and I talked with several authors, publishers, and booksellers to find out what they love about this massive annual event in Los Angeles. My name is Matt Coyle. I write the Anthony Award-winning Rick Cahill crime stories. And uh, I love the LA Times Festival of Books because you get to see old friends and meet new readers. So my name is Patricia Smiley, but my friends call me Patty, and I uh, am currently writing a series about an LAPD homicide detective named Davey Richards. And what I love about the LA Times Festival of Books is being able to wander around among like 150,000 book lovers. And the latest thing I love about it is I can take the metro to get here. Yay! (laughs) Hi, this is Colleen Bates from Prospect Park Books. I think my favorite thing is hanging out with book people, including my own authors, who I often don't get to see very much, but it's nice to hang out a little. I just like being part of the book community here. Hi, my name is David Putnam, the author of The Innocence that came out last February. My favorite part about the Festival of Books is connecting with all the readers. Hi, this is Mary Elizabeth Itteraldi with Mysterious Galaxy. And my favorite thing about the LA Times Festival of Books is for not necessarily being something that's on the map as a book town like some other towns. Um, It is amazing to see thousands of people out for the joy of books. Hi, my name's Lee Goldberg. I'm the author of True Fiction. And what I like best about the LA Times Festival of Books is all the women who throw themselves at me. I don't get that at home. Only at the LA Times Festival of Books. Hello, I'm Tyson Cornell from Rare Bird Books, based in Los Angeles. Here at the LA Times Festival of Books, it's so great to see all these familiar faces and 
all the families that come out that we don't normally see slinging books. I'm Jennifer Kinchelow, author of The Secret Life of Anna Blanc and The Woman in the Camphor Trunk. And what I like about the LA Times Book Festival is readers, meeting readers, talking to readers, and being inspired by readers. Hi, Ellen Byron, and I'm here uh, with uh, Cajun Christmas Killing, which just won um, the Lefty Award for Best Humorous Mystery. And what I love about the LA Times Festival of Book is it's just uh, a dream come true for readers. And I'm a reader before, I was a reader before I was ever a writer. So just to see all these books, it's like a treasure chest to me. Hi, my name is Catherine Pellinero. I'm the author of Absolute Madness and Kitty Genovese. I'm a true crime writer. And the thing I like best about the book festival is getting the chance to talk to readers. Being able to meet them in person is the best. My name is Chip Jacobs. I'm a Pasadena native, born and bred reporter, author, went to USC, uh, worked for the LA Times. So I just love that there's a currency of interest and imagination going on here. And in a time when we're, everybody's looking down at their stupid phones, this is time to celebrate something on a page, you know? It, it's really reassuring to see there's people out here, especially young parents, trying to get that into their kids' head that books are their escape into a better place. So, you know, I think it's fantastic and it's reassuring in a distressing time. Well, I was indeed so sorry to miss the Festival of Books this year, uh, but you got some great audio there, and I agree with so many of those voices. It's so great to go to an event like that and to see real evidence that books are alive and well. Well, Eric, just like peaches and herb, we were reunited for our next interview with Michael Cardos. As you will remember, Michael is the author of The Three-Day Affair, Before He Finds Her, and the newly released Bluff. And Bluff has definitely been one of my favorite reads this year. It lays out a dark and desperate tale that's set in the world of magic and sleight of hand and high-stakes poker. Uh, but, you know, before we talked books, we had some uh, other serious subjects to get out of the way. Drum roll, please. Okay, Michael, I know this is supposed to be a crime and mystery podcast. We get yes. that. You're probably here to talk about books and writing, okay? But there's a more important topic that we have to kick things off with. Yes. It's my understanding that you play the most noble of all instrument, which is the <laughs> drums. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is, what is your preferred genre of music? Are you a punk? A metalhead, a funk guy? I'm going to give you the least hip answer you've probably ever gotten asking a drummer what their favorite thing is. Air Supply and Cover I, Band. I'm the second worst. <laughs> uh, for a year, I played in a Springsteen tribute band. That was marginally cool. But when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I was a really big Billy Joel fan. And I, and I learned a lot of drums listening to Liberty DeVito play the drums flailingly wildly but musically and that's kind of that was my guy listening to him uh, you know and uh it's not a great answer but air supply was going to be next <laughs> is that like a, a new jersey loyalty thing that you would go liberty devito because you're literally the first drummer who's ever uh, <laughs> listed liberty devito as their main influence <laughs> no i think what i think what it was the first record that i ever bought was the stranger and there's you know we're all attached to the first record we ever buy you know we oh, yeah. wear it into the ground and uh it was that or acdc which I, which was pretty cool too but yeah so i just started listening to a lot of a lot of billy joel that's kind of how i learned to play the drums that, that is a real uh, branch in the woods there acdc and billy joel that, that was a life choice you made <laughs> dare i say you chose wrong michael <laughs> oh i know that the funny thing is now that we're a few decades past i realized that all the kids who I was afraid of, who were sitting in the back of the bus, like smoking cigarettes and playing music, they had the right musical taste. I, I totally, I freely admit that they were right and I was wrong. So Michael, let me, let me get this straight. What you're saying about those kids in the back of the bus is they may have been right. You may have been crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Just maybe a lunatic at the other end of this podcast. Wow. <laughs> And are you still performing these days? A little bit. You know, I'm in a small town in Mississippi. All the musicians kind of know each other. A couple few times a year I play, but not too often these days. The, the, the drums are set up in the house. 
Now, Michael, this uh, small town you mentioned is uh, Starkville, Mississippi, and I am proud to say I have been to Starkville. Have you? Staying with the music side of things, I've been there to play a show with my old band. Yeah. Did you play Dave's Dark Horse Tavern? We played Dave's Dark Horse Tavern. That's exactly yeah, it. In like 1997, I think. 96 it's probably, or 97. It probably looks pretty similar. It's still a cool cool little place. So you, you're there teaching at the university and you mm-hmm. teach writing. So I want to know what, what advice are you giving your students on how to craft a suspenseful tale? Well, it's funny because I think no matter what kind of fiction writing they're doing we do talk I don't know if we necessarily use the word suspense but we're talking about those kind of things all the time you know like what draws a reader in on the first page and what keeps them going and so we're always talking about things having to do with suspense you know pacing and delay and rushing and without necessarily using that word okay if we're gonna have to talk about books (laughs) I definitely want to talk about your new novel bluff Okay. Bluff takes place in the world of magic and sleight of hand artists. This has to be something that you've been interested in for a while, right? Well, it's just that Liberty DeVito kind of like magic, so I felt like I had to. <laughs> oh, slowly backing away from the mic. This is now Michael Cardos's podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, we're not, you know, I like to be the coolest kid around. So in addition to being a huge Billy Joel fan, I was really into magic. Um, you, can, you can tell I had a lot of dates. When I was in high school, I was, for two summers, I did magic shows on the boardwalk in New Jersey. And I thought it was really cool because I was getting a buck more than minimum wage. Minimum wage was three thirty-five. I was getting four thirty-five, and I was feeling so smug. I didn't tell anyone. I was like, no one would believe me. <laughs> and, uh, I always liked it. I was like watching it. And then actually when I was a grad student, I had an undergrad. My first fiction writing class I ever taught, one of my undergrads was a professional magician. He was already traveling all over the place. He'd be like, oh, I can't come to class on Thursday because I'm going to be in China performing for royalty. And when I started working on this book, I knew I at least had a really great magician sleight of hand guy that I could bounce things off of and make sure my terminology was right and everything. But I don't know. I just always thought magic and writing had a lot in common anyway. It's just some of the things we we're talking about, drawing, the, you know, you're drawing the audience in, you have to have the right patter. There's a sense of wonder. That's just what a magician's doing. Well, that's, uh, I really love the book and I thought you you handled that really well. And and while you drop a lot of magician terms and, and you, you mm-hmm. reference specific tricks and especially specific sleight of hand things, you still kept it understandable for the, the lay person how did you really work on like striking that balance between geeking out about the magic stuff while still keeping it grounded in in a character story? I kind of wanted it to be a book that obviously a layperson, just an ordinary reader could read. But also if I happened to hand it to an actual magician or a serious poker player, it would pass the test for them too. Um, and, you know, there, there's no quick answer. I just, I did a lot of revision and kind of like tweaking how much to explain you know should i assume my reader would know the basic rules of texas hold'em or the basic you know what hand beats what hand and and i just had to just make a bunch of calls and ultimately and hope for the best but and have you know have i had a few more readers on this book than i might otherwise because i wanted people who played poker and didn't play poker and who knew about magic and didn't know about magic and so um you know at one point you read the book so you know at one point i cheated and i have an illustration there's a poker <laughs> hand in there that it just, I was trying to figure out a thousand ways how to describe it. And I realized that was ridiculous. So I just drew the picture and stuck it in. That's smart. <laughs> but you draw a sharp distinction between magicians and con men in bluff. Mm-hmm. Is this something magicians actually have to deal with the, that fine line between fooling people and fleecing them? Um, I think yes and no. I think in the book, there, there's a sort of a moral code that a few of the characters are pretty adamant about not crossing. In reality, you know, magic is ultimately fair play and cheating at cards is ultimately not fair play. Now, when you were doing all this research and talking to these people who had experience, did, did you run into any resistance from uh, magician people who were like, okay, don't give away the secrets here. This because if you give away too much, you are in danger of losing your magician's card, of which I know you are literally a card holding. Back in 80, I think it was 85 and 86. Uh, there were about three years. Yes, I, I did my three tricks in, in uh, Society of American Magicians, Chapter 181, I think, out of Neptune, New Jersey. Wow. That leads to my other burning question, which is, 
How does a Liberty DeVito fanboy from New Jersey end up in Mississippi? They all do. Oh, Every okay. one of them. All one of you? All one. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. When I was finishing up grad school, Mississippi State um, made uh, my wife and me an offer we couldn't refuse, which is that they hired both of us. So she's a poet. Uh, does she write the lyrics for your bands? <laughs> no, she would not do that. <laughs> well, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, also the story that you wrote for the second volume of Unloaded, uh, mm -hmm. which I've edited and you were kind enough to write me a story. And w the thing that you ended up turning in is this a real feat of architecture, <laughs> really. It's, describe for the people the, the concept behind yeah. a vanishing story. All right. Well, first of all, I was thrilled to write that story for the book. So I can't believe you're thanking me. I sh I'm thanking you. So <laughs> I'm, I'm so psyched that it's in there. But I, I did a lot of magic research and I had I, clearly I had too much magic on the brain because I ended up, you know, with this uh, one off short story that was also featuring a magician. So basically the story is called a vanishing story because she makes the husband disappear. But the story also disappears. So the first sentence of the story is 64 words, and the second sentence of the story is 63 words, and then 62 words, all the way down to one word. So the story vanishes. I don't know, Eric. That's pretty impressive. I mean, for the first volume of Unloaded, I wrote about a murderous clown. <laughs> I, I feel like I kind of came up short. No, write what you know. <laughs> Well, Steve, I, I must be really busy lately because uh, I had to sit out this next segment as well. That's right. I had to dial up our resident reviewers, the Malmans, all by myself. It was two against one, Eric. Two Malmans against one Loudon. Don't ever do that to me again. <laughs> Roll the tape. Malmans, uh, I am calling worried about you because as I understand it, Minneapolis is under 48 feet of snow right now. It's uh, the only way you can get from here to there in uh, downtown Minneapolis to downtown St. Paul is actually by Tauntaun. Oh, good, good. Well, I'm glad we brought it back around to Star Wars as fast as possible. <laughs> I've got like a good five minutes worth of Star Wars material in my back pocket at all times. Gotta be ready. Gotta be ready. Well, we're here today to check in with you about what you've been reading recently. So uh, who wants to start things off? I'll go first. So last month I did a review of an, an anthology, the Obama Inheritance. So my attention span is still very short. So I'm sticking with the anthology. So this month I'm talking about Night of the Flood by Ed Amar and Sarah Chen. And there's a, a unifying thread throughout all the, the stories. So a woman named Maggie in Pennsylvania was raped by two local men. When the justice system uh, failed her, she took justice into her own hands, shot and killed the two men. At her trial, she was then sentenced to death for their killing. A group called the Daughters announces that they are going to blow up the local dam in town if Maggie is executed. She gets executed, they blow up the dam. So all of the short stories talk about what happened after the flood. So JJ Hensley has a short story called The Copy Man, where some of the members of the daughters decide that they're gonna not follow the plan, they're going rogue. Also, Angel Luis Colon has a short story called Bad Day to Be the Bad Guy. Uh, here, his protagonist, Jack Blackie Jaguar, goes to Everton, Pennsylvania, where the, the events take place to settle a debt, and he ends up leaving with his precious Plymouth Fury. So all of the stories can actually be read alone as single short stories. They're great standalone stories. You don't need to read anything else to understand it. But there's also that thread of the night's events that tie everything together. And it's a really, really, really well done story. So kudos to Ed and Sarah for coordinating and organizing this whole thing because every writer's voice is there and it's very, very distinct stories, but there's that thread that ties everything together that makes it a very cohesive book. So Dan, did you read a, a comic book? Uh, did you watch a Star Wars movie or did you read a book this month? This month um, I read um, the newest thriller by Brad Meltzer. I'm a hipster Brad Meltzer fan going back. Uh, I was introduced to his work actually through comics when he did Green Arrow after the Kevin Smith run. 
everyone knows it. I'm not a huge thriller guy, but I will um, go out and buy the newest Brad Meltzer in hardcover every time. What he does that I, I will always appreciate, um, the new book is called The Escape Artist. Um, not only does he lead with a cliffhanger, he leads with character beats. So he gets me right at the beginning because his characters are so clearly defined and so human that um, the fantastic is well thought out. You usually learn something from his books, but you're in it for the character. And that's really what it's all about. Um, so with the escape artist, you're meeting up with Zig Zigorowski. Uh, he's a mortician. Um, and I can't remember the last time a, a thriller book started a mortician, but he's a mortician at Dover Air Force Base. Uh, Dover is the base that takes care of all of America's fallen. So worldwide, if there's something happening and our service people are sent back home, they go to Dover and he's the one that does the dirty work. He reconstructs faces, he rebuilds people and he does it for um, the families. And that's, that's his thing. He surrounds himself with death so that the rest of, of the families can get on with life. But while he is, the character is preparing the body of a, a woman named Nola Brown, inside her body, inside her stomach, he finds a note that she swallowed while her plane was going down. And it says, Nola, you were right. Run. It's a, an insane book. I read it in a week. So again, Brad Meltzer fanboy, um, I'm always going to preach his stuff. What I'm curious about is last time when we spoke, you told us that you occasionally throw a book in the freezer um, when it gets too tense for you. And I'm wondering if with all the snow outside, you just chuck it out the front door. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, we actually have uh, slabs of meat hanging in the garage right now. I like to think of you in your garage with all the meat hanging around shirtless uh, boxing, like, like Rocky. Most of the internet likes to think about me um, shirtless boxing. No, no, no. Normally it's you hugging our water heater. <laughs> well, okay. I need to even the score here on the uh, solo segments. So when I was in Chicago, I also had a chance to chat with author Bob Hartley, who wrote one of my absolute favorite books of the year, North and Central. So I caught up with Bob just for a very brief chat in a very noisy hallway between panels at Murder and Mayhem. I'm here with the author Bob Hartley. And Bob, you are uh, back in Chicago uh, where your novel North and Central is set. How's it feel to be back in the old neighborhood? Oh, it's, uh, it's been, it's always great to come back. I, uh, there's a lot that's changed, obviously. And so, but I took the L through the west side and it brought back a lot of memories, let's put it that way. <laughs> now, uh, North and Central is uh, is the intersection where your bar is. Right. Is that a real intersection? Yeah, there's a. it's North Avenue and Central. It's uh, on the far west side of Chicago. It's a very old neighborhood. It's It's been there. Actually, it was, used to be part of Oak Park. That's where Hemingway came from. And oh. it was annexed by the city. Oak Park actually voted it out. <laughs> Well, I've I've raved about the novel before, and I want to know like it's it, to me it hit the exact sweet spot of what a noir novel should be in that it's there's crime in there and there's shenanigans going on, but the heart of it is really the characters and and a little bit of a, a doomed fate I think right. for these characters was that is that the kind of novels that you like to read? <laughs> I like American tragedy, so it's I, I don't uh, you know it, it reflects not the people who've done well within the society, but people who are basically, through no fault of their own, really, doomed by it, you know, to a certain degree. It's, and this is the case here. I mean, basically, it, yes, there are, everybody in this book is uh, corrupted. Uh, most of them are criminals in one way or another, uh, including the police. But a backdrop to that, or uh, overarching uh, problem is that the factory in the neighborhood is uh, coming to its demise. And that's what happened in Chicago. And so it was really bad for um, uh, I say European-American workers, you know, white workers. It was really bad for them. It was a disaster for African-Americans, and, and it has never, ever been addressed. That's what I also is about the hypocrisy of the system itself, like how people who are affluent often, and middle class, to be honest with you, too, and upper middle class, how they often think of themselves as being so superior and ethically superior. No. Well, uh, I think 2008 told us something about that. 
There's, there you go. There's fodder for another book right there. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, no, I'm getting rather political here, but that's really what the book's about. Yeah. I got to say, Murder and Mayhem in Chicago sounded amazing this year. Did you enjoy yourself? I enjoyed it very much, uh, despite getting heckled from the crowd by Sarah Paretsky. Uh, although, actually, I sort of saw that as sort of a badge of honor. <laughs> you know you've made it in the writing world when Sarah Paretsky is uh, giving you shit from the audience. That sounds like a dream come true, Eric. Congratulations. <laughs> okay, Eric, it's unpanel time. And this time around, we decided to talk to three publishers of short story fiction. Now, Eric, when you and I broke in to crime publishing, we both started by publishing a lot of short stories, um, and it was a, a way to not only get your name out there and meet other writers, but to kind of prove yourself a little bit and, and prove to yourself that you were worthy of publishing. Absolutely. Uh, and the sad news is most of the sites and magazines where I published some of my early work have gone away. I, either you know they shut down, people get too busy. You know, life gets in the way. It's it's a thankless task <laughs> to start your own short story publishing uh, website or, or imprint. But the new writers can take heart because there are actually some brand new markets and, and great publications that are coming out now. And we've gathered three of these publishers together to get a little bit of their advice on what they're looking for in a great short story. Hi, this is Rusty Barnes, founder and editor of Tough a weekly blogazine of crime fiction with occasional reviews, which you can find at toughcrime.com. The secret to writing a great crime story is to begin with a great first sentence, a memorable hook, a bang, any reason to keep the reader reading. In keeping with that, start as close to the main action of the story as you can. And even if you think your protagonist is in trouble from the beginning, as Larry Brown once said, saddle them down with even more. Go after the heart of the conflict. Blair Hurley brings up a great example on LitHub this week in an article entitled The Best Stories Break at Least One of Their Own Rules. We've all got those story rules we learned along the way and cling to unnecessarily. Stories matter when they push the boundaries of what is acceptable and polite. Push your boundaries. My name is Alex Cizak. I'm a writer and the founding editor of Pulp Modern a fiction journal that includes all the classic pulp genres. Though we tend to lean the most toward crime fiction because that constitutes the majority of the submissions we get. When I'm reading a submission for Pulp Modern, in addition to the competence of the prose itself, I'm looking for a few things. Story is paramount. We are not an experimental journal. So John Barth attempting to deconstruct Raymond Chandler won't get very far with me. Stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Some sort of process needs to have taken place over the course of the story. In other words, the world in the beginning of the story should be altered by the end of the story. Some cliches to avoid would be excessive violence against women. I'm not a white knight, male, feminist, or anything, but I get awful sick and tired of stories obviously written by guys who don't understand women and therefore think the solution is to fantasize about ways to physically destroy them. The opposite of that, of course, is the exalting of women to the point of absurdity. Make your women characters realistic. Most women are neither meek little victims nor are they the terminator in a G-string. The most common cliché with respect to the kinds of stories I see is the biter-bit narrative, where we think one person is plotting against another, only to see in the end of the story that the person we thought would be the victim has actually been setting up the other person the entire time. And finally, it's okay for your protagonist to die, but please don't end the story with something like, and then the lights went out, or, and then all was silent. A good short story doesn't ever give us the money shot, so to speak. My suggestion is to end the story just before it actually ends. Let the reader participate in deciding what's going to happen to your protagonist. I'm Scotch Rutherford, creator and managing editor for Switchblade magazine. Me, I'm all about pacing. From the top of the bell at the very first line, you want to hit the reader as hard as you can. 
make him fight for the next two paragraphs to pull himself up off the canvas. That's what's known as the hook. By about the midpoint around six, you're going to want to hit him hard again. Let him try and find his legs and hold on before the last round when you put him away. You see, a really good noir tale doesn't end leaving the reader filled with euphoria. It puts him on his ass and wakes him with smelling salts. One last thing. Always make your protagonist an underdog. Make your protagonist earn your reader's respect. If you've ever been the underdog, then you know the price of respect. Taking it is the only way you ever earned it, and you had to earn it every time. You can find us at switchblademag.com, or just type Switchblade Magazine into your browser and let our friends at Google show you the way. Steve, our final guest this month is John Shepard. He is the Anthony Award-nominated author of the Shill Trilogy and the new novel Bottom Feeders, which is about a low-budget film set being terrorized by an arrow-shooting killer. You know, that old trope. <laughs> John is a screenwriter and a film director, so naturally that means he lives in Los Angeles. And it also means he was able to stop by the writer type studio, also known as Eric's Garage. We're here live in studio for our first ever in-studio guest, John Shepard. Welcome uh, to the studio. Yeah, well, thank you, guys. John, you're here uh, on the occasion of your debut full-length novel, Bottom Feeders, uh, and this takes place uh, in Hollywood, in the in the film and, and entertainment industry. And I gotta say, you take a slightly jaundiced eye towards the industry <laughs> in, in this book. Is this uh, based on a lot of your own personal experience? A lot of it is based on personal experience. I, you know, I started working in uh, years ago, making and working for. Uh, when the independent film scene, there's a blockbuster in every corner in America, and, and there was a lot of opportunity for these low-budget movies, genre pictures, all sorts of films, yeah. which was great for filmmakers, and that's what it really came from. So it's kind of a, it's a meld of a lot of experiences, not just one. <laughs> so you dedicate Bottom Feeders to, quote, the dreamers and the schemers in the low-budget trenches. It suggests a certain camaraderie among indie film types, Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, the, the people that there's a there's a lot of stuff out there about the limos and about the personal assistants and about that whole like high end part of Hollywood that people are attracted to. And I'm like, that's not real. I mean, there's a, so much in the in the reality, you know, you get people in the film industry together and they're kind of like old cops. Everyone's going to tell a story <laughs> and everyone's going to tell like, you know, the horror story or what happened. And, you know, oh, yeah, we're there's never any kind of, oh, it's a smooth sailing shoot. It was perfectly done. There's none of that. Everyone's, you know, everyone's everyone's trying to squeeze as much out of every project. So naturally you're going to get conflict. Naturally, you're going to have personalities flare up. And that's just the nature of the beast. Well, but I mean, the one thing I appreciate because, you know, there are, are definitely elements in this book that I recognize from from working in the industry, but it's a thriller, you know, it's a suspense. Thriller. So you're you're using your experience in putting that reality of the setting and the characters into this thing. But I mean, it's not like someone has to work in the industry to, to get everything they're going to get out of this book. It's still a great murder mystery at its heart. Well, thank you. That's what I went for. I mean, I wanted to tell the story. I mean, it could have be it, that same story could be in any yeah. any industry. I, uh, the one thing I did need is isolation. And that's what brought me to the movie ranch up in the, you know, tucked away. And then the, the fires are approaching and a lot of escalations are separating our people from reality, finding, you know, running for help or running away. And that's, you kind of need that. You know, you think of Agatha Christie with Tinlet Indian. They're not up, if they weren't all up on that castle and with no way to go home, then you wouldn't have a story. Yeah. But, and I think the the desperation of the characters too. I mean, it's like in, in a way you, you sort of tap into a very almost noirish kind of cast of characters because ev everyone is sort of clawing and, you know, taking this job because it, it may not pay the most, but it could lead to the next thing. And so that you, you, everyone has their own sort of like grinding desperation underneath everything. And then throw on top of this, you know, arrows flying out of nowhere and taking people out. <laughs> There's a lot of desperation in low <laughs> Eric, budget. I'm actually, uh, I'm very glad you brought up the arrows flying out of nowhere because since John is our first in-studio guest, 
I've asked him to bring his high-tech hunting bow along. So Eric, if you could just back up towards the wall and put the <laughs> apple on your head, um, I think we could do something really exciting here. Great. And it's the last episode of Rider Types. <laughs> that's right, because Eric does all the editing. If he gets shot with an, uh, an arrow, that's it. It's over. Yeah, we, we should mention that John and I are together. Steve has stayed on the other side of town. <laughs> Because I, th I think you were a little worried about the research that John did for this book. Modern compound bow. And these things in the last 20 years have gone from a, you know, a Yugo to like a, a complete like sports car. These things are so incredibly nasty with, you know, that now they all have these these cams and special alloy. They're, they're incredibly, incredibly powerful now. Much deadlier weapon than they've ever been. <laughs> And that, and that was another thing that fascinated me. I got to write some about these things. These things are so horrible. This is like, this. I would rather be shot with a 357 Magnum <laughs> than be shot with one of these modern uh, mechanical broadheads. <laughs> now, the other thing, you know, this book is published by Blackstone, who uh, has a history of doing audiobooks. So, uh, you know, naturally an audiobook was going to come along with this deal. Uh, and you ended up getting a, a great one out of the deal. Tell us about who uh, who reads the audiobook for you. I was very fortunate. Uh, Bronson Pinchot read the audiobook, and uh, I mean, I, he's great. He's uh, he's kind of a big star in the audiobook world. He's won the, their top honors before, called the Audi, and uh, Audible had had deemed him narrator of the year uh, oh. a, a few years back. So he he's kind of a big deal. And I I listen to audiobooks because I live in Los Angeles and I have a commute. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I really grew, grew to really, really like him. Like, wow, is he good? I'm just so, I'm ecstatic the way it turned out. And if anyone understood kind of Hollywood <laughs> and and he certainly, he just knew that he knew all the nuances. He was the perfect, perfect guy to, to voice this story. Uh, and, and this is actually very exciting for us because we've been provided with this exclusive audio excerpt. We don't have to ask you about what a bottom feeder is in Hollywood parlance. We're actually going to let Bronson Pinchot explain it uh, for us in a little segment from the book. So let's give that a listen and then we'll be right back with more with John Shepard. Deep down, Sheila realized the crews working these flat-rate, take-it-or-leave-it indie quickies made up what she referred to as the bottom feeders of the industry. Bottom feeders? Sheila didn't want to be a bottom feeder anymore. She aspired to rise to the surface and work on legitimate, unionized movies and TV shows that people had actually heard of, but no. Instead, she was shackled to yet another forgettable television movie her friends would never see unless they, by chance, stumbled across it on daytime cable. Bottom feeder. That's me. So, John, Bottom Feeders is set at a remote movie ranch, and since there are a few famous ones and have been a few famous ranches scattered around L.A., like Big Sky Ranch in Simi Valley or the Paramount Movie Ranch in the Santa Monica Mountains. Was there one in particular that you based your setting on? There wasn't really one. I've been to a few of them out around the West. I've scouted a few of them. There are big, big, extraordinary ones, but there's a lot of these like guys that kind of slap a few th things together, make a t Western town and then try to attract productions into a place just by someone who, some guy who wants to throw together some Western sets so he can be part of the movie business. So not only are the people who make the films bottom feeders in that sense, but somebody who just builds a Western set in their backyard can also be a bottom feeder. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just lumber, you know, lumber and some old <laughs> photographs, go to work, some nails, you, you know, you're going to get, you'll get someone to show up. <laughs> some of us will do anything to be a part of the glamour of Hollywood. Doesn't sound very glamorous the way we're talking about it right now, guys. Well, actually, that's the thing. You know, there's very little glamour in the low budget. The world is full of you know, people that think coming to Hollywood is a big glamorous thing. And you work on the big shows and, you know, where the movies or television shows like Entourage and like, you know, you know, big agents and big limos. And the vast majority of people who work in Hollywood and create this stuff that's really on the fringe of your cable guide are just, you know, workmen like individuals. And a lot of this stuff. So a lot of that stuff gets made and doesn't see the light of day. Now, you in your film work, you've sort of genre hopped a little bit. You've, you've done a little bit of everything. What was it about crime fiction that when you decided to focus your time and energy on writing something that takes as much time as a novel, what, what made crime fiction the place for you to be? 
I've always liked crime fiction and I like suspense. I'm also, my aesthetic is, is what could really happen. Um, I'm not one for fantasy or science fiction. Maybe it's from the 70s crime that I grew up with on television and, and a lot of the movies made and even fiction of that time. I really like the stuff that lives in the reality. I have to believe it could really happen. As a reader, I love that stuff and, and that's what I chose to write. So the, the natural follow-up question would be, do you cast your stories in your head as you're writing them? I don't necessarily cast them in my head. I kind of have an idea, I think as all writers do, kind of their their voice, their tone, their mannerisms, but I don't think of a of an actor that would play them, no. You know, I, I used to do some acting back in high school, so if you, oh, you know, yeah. when the time comes, I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah, well, you know, I- uh, You'd make a great bottom feeder, buddy. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Eric, we're almost done, but before we go, we need to announce the winner of the Tugboat Thriller Contest. That's right. If you remember last episode, our guest Owen Laukinen kindly offered up a signed copy of his latest thriller, Gale Force, to the Writer Types listener who gave us the best name for a tugboat thriller over on our Twitter page, and we got some amazingly hilarious entries. But there can only be one winner. And that winner will be named as soon as we name some runners up. <laughs> Coming in fourth place with an honorable mention is Frank Zafiro with Tug Me Gently. After that, uh, Owen chose Jim Thompson's That Tug Really Tied the Room Together. Wait, that, that, that one's a thinker. <laughs> yeah, it took me about, about three tries reading that one to understand where it was coming <laughs> from, but then it's genius. Our second runner up is Michael Strom with the tugboat always toots twice. And Owen also wanted to give a special acknowledgement to all of the entries by Jay Stringer, but uh, he correctly pointed out that Jay is not eligible to win since he already won the crime quiz uh, in Toronto in spectacular fashion, I might add. But our winner is... What's Crackin' by Scott Cumming. And there's nothing better than a spelling joke on a podcast. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It's cracking the giant sea creature, much like a uh, squid or an octopus. <laughs> Congratulations, Scott Cumming. And to everybody who entered, that was a lot of fun. And we hope to bring you some more contests like that in the future. Absolutely. So, Scott, you can be on the lookout for your signed copy of Owen Laukinen's Gale Force when the book is released in May. Thanks, Owen, for uh, offering up a free copy. Well, that about does it for another episode. And boy, Steve, we learned some valuable lessons this time around. Yes, we did. Gillian Flynn taught us to leave the crazy downstairs. Michael Cardos taught us that a childhood listening to Billy Joel will leave you just damaged enough to write crime fiction for a living. And John Shepard taught us that Hollywood isn't all glamour and fame, you know, like, like podcasting is. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. We hope you're following along on Twitter and Facebook. For more on Steve's books, visit SWLoudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to EricBeatner.com. And hey, if you like what you hear on this podcast, please leave a review or tell your friends about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.